Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/spoken today. Hi there, this is Martina Navratilova. Uh, hi, I'm Mats Vilander. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with Eurosport. Brought to you this week once again from the pub in Putney because David Law. It was such a roaring success last time. We thought we'd come back for more. Uh, uh, yeah, we haven't got anything quite as serious as we had last week to talk about. Although one might argue with uh, Maria Sharapova's return that that's not quite true. But it doesn't feel quite, quite as ominous in terms of uh, something that we need to quietly refer to so you know we've come down the pub to have a few drinks what can i say yes two beers law is in attendance he is currently uh, in disguise as one beer law so uh, fun won't be had until the latter portion of the podcast but uh, it's worth worth sticking around for if you're wondering um yes you've you've stolen my thunder there david because of course i marie sharapova has made her return this week i had a big pun prepared there about a, a controversial and exciting wild card, making a run to the title at the Stuttgart Open, Laura Siegmund. <laughs> well, it still worked, Catherine. You got a <laughs> laugh out of me. I didn't know what your pun would be, uh, and it still made me made me chuckle. So uh, very well done there. Oh, by the way, did you hear uh, the Nick Kyrgios special tennis podcast extra? The first one. What did you think? Yes. Well, if. If the Tennis Podcast presenters aren't listening to their special extra episodes, then I'm not sure we can expect anybody else out there to. Yes, I did. Um, and it was highly enjoyable. It, it affirmed for me that he is a lovely chap. Uh, really? And, yeah. Absolutely a really likeable, imperfect young man with a basically good decent head on his shoulders and uh, as imperfect has some perfecting to do <laughs> but yeah basically a, a decent human being who can be just the most wonderful power for good in tennis yeah yeah very interesting to listen to Leighton Hewitt on it I was speaking about it obviously with Simon Briggs if you haven't hear, heard that edition uh, do go and look it up if you're only listening or downloading once a week tennis podcast extra is something we put out on Friday and you can go and have a listen to 10 minutes of uh, Nick Kyrgios talking to Simon Briggs of the Telegraph and uh, well another 10 minutes of uh, Leighton Hewitt talking to me and just so interesting to chart their their respective pathways through tennis because I, I was sort of there at the start of Leighton Hewitt's career in 1998 when he was a 16-year-old is pretty much when I started out on the tennis circuit and it's not that dissimilar in terms of controversial moments, in terms of, of, of issues that, that, that occurred, totally different kinds of reasons because with Hewitt there was never a suggestion that he would tap out of a match or, or burn out and have those sorts of uh, 
of, of issues on court. It was more combustible offences of, of him just bubbling over and not being able to handle not winning when he's given ev- absolutely everything and in the process upsetting people with things he might have said in those in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. It's really easy to forget now with Leighton Hewitt because he is he spent so long out there scurrying around at the back of the court earning and winning the media's respect, the fans' respect, everybody's respect in tennis. But there was a long period there where he had a pretty rocky relationship with the Australian press and the Australian public. I think for for one thing, they were just annoyed that he wasn't Pat Rafter to start with because yeah, Pat Rafter was this sort of... Tough audience, isn't yeah, it, in exactly. that regard? I mean, you you know, know. Pat Rafter won Australian of the Year after he stopped playing tennis. He was just kicking his heels on a beach... <laughs> on Sunshine Beach and he's still winning Australian of the Year. Poor old Leighton Hewitt had to enter into that arena. And actually, it's the sa- it was the same with everybody almost before and after Pat Rafter because I think, I think even Pat Cash probably suffered by comparison to Rafter when Rafter came along. I think that Mark Philippus is as, as, as effectively a contemporary of Pat Rafter. Everybody in Australia in tennis was viewed as not Pat. Rafter. And, yeah, and, and Pat, if you, you've if you made everyone's life yeah. an absolute nightmare. You're the Ryan Gosling of the tennis world. What's it, do you know Ryan Gosling? Or No, I don't, but you know, nobody... I, I've spoken to... Uh, goodness me, we're off topic already. <laughs> this is what happens in our pub episodes. But I've spoken to men about the existence of Ryan Gosling and it annoys them because nobody should be that charismatic. It just makes everybody else look bad. No, oh. man, no man should be allowed to be that charismatic because it's not fair on everyone else. I won't go and look up who he is then. I don't even think David Law is joking there. Just quickly before we move on to the actual meat and bones of uh, the... <laughs> The developments in the tennis world this week. I went to the British Podcast Awards on Saturday. David, oh yeah, did we win? And I'm very surprised. I had a, a scan through the national papers on Sunday, and there was no reporting of the extraordinary Oscars-esque uh, admin error that occurred at oh, yeah. the awards on what Saturday happened? night. I mean, I don't know where Faye Dunaway and who was the other one? Who, who was the other Warren one? Beatty, Warren Beatty, wasn't Warren Beatty, yeah. I mean, it was of those proportions what occurred on Saturday night, and I'm surprised it hasn't received more press attention, frankly, because when the sports nominees were flashed up on that screen, there was horror in the room as the tennis podcast wasn't there. Shocked silence, indeed. Shocked silence, yeah. yeah. Things were being thrown at the stage, recounts were being demanded. That was just Catherine. The free cheap wine was being thrown on the floor in disgust. You didn't tell me there was free cheap wine. I would have. It was quite the. Oh, it was was really cheap wine, David. (laughs) (laughs) I would have definitely come there. Really cheap wine. Anyway, freeze free. Uh, So yeah, there was some sort of horrendous miscarriage of justice on Saturday. If anyone involved with the British Podcast Awards is listening, we will forgive you, but only if you rectify the situation and restore justice at the 2018 awards. We will be waiting intently for the nominees. But congratulations to whoever <laughs> did win. Who was it? It was a it was a boxing podcast. Oh, so it wasn't even the cycling podcast. And they weren't podcast. there because there was a big boxing match happening oh, right. on Saturday, so they didn't even bother to show up. Didn't think that through, Adam did Buxton they? only showed up via video link. So the cycling podcast was on the nominee list. They were on the That's nominee right, list, then, isn't it? And yeah. the Graham Hunter there was a wrestling well. podcast. I mean, I, I can't believe. Anyway, we digress, but I just can't believe we got beaten by a wrestling. We got podcast. beaten by a wrestling podcast, and I don't want to talk about it anymore because don't, they don't need the promotion, frankly. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, 2018 is a new year for, 
<laughs> for the British Podcast Awards and for the Tennis Podcast uh, expectant success there. Should we talk about uh, Stuttgart and the circus yes. that rolled into town in Stuttgart? I think we should. Last week. I mean, it was all um, very much highlighted by Maria Sharapova in her first round press conference after beating Roberta Vinci she was asked a question by Dan King of The Sun and she immediately hit back by querying whether a Sun journalist had ever attended the Stuttgart event before and made a, a quite pithy remark about oh you know I, in fact she referred to him as a virgin didn't she The Sun of Stuttgart virgin sort of highlighting and very much drawing attention to the fact that we all knew why everybody was there. I mean, of course she was expecting it. I'm sure a, a portion of her relished it. The facts are she reached the semi-finals. It was a very, very good week. It wasn't good enough to get her into the French Open uh, main draw, uh, French Open qualifying. She's up to 262 in the world. She lost out to Kiki Mladenovic, the finalist in the end. Where do we start, David? Let's start with her form, shall we? Let's start with her tennis. What do you make of well, her level? I, I saw the first match. Uh, she was pretty erratic uh, early on, particularly. She was unsurprisingly erratic. I mean, let's be honest, this is a player who hasn't played tournament tennis for 18 months. And uh, she was hitting the back fence at times. She was hitting some screaming winners, but she just looked a bit out of sync, really, as you would expect her to be. But she still won the match against Roberta Vinci, who is a player who presents you with difficult balls to strike on a clay court in your first match back. I think that that was a, a good win for her, frankly, for Maria Sharapova to, to come back with. She then beat Ekaterina Makarova and, uh, and and got herself to the, the semi-finals, beating um, Kontovic on the way as well. I, I, I do find that interesting that she ended up losing to Mladenovic. I think that's a really good result from her perspective, but that's just on the court. So I think probably Sharapova looked better than I would have expected. I think it was a good set of results. I think it keeps it intriguingly open in terms of the wildcard situation in, in as much as now we know the French Open has to make a decision. <laughs> they were, boy, were they hoping they wouldn't have to make a decision. Well, it's, they a, it's an inter- I mean, they'd already announced, they'd already announced had the, uh, the French Open that they were going to Facebook Live the uh, the announcement of, of of whether she's getting a wild card or not, which I have to say was, I thought, crikey, that's uh, that feels a little opportunistic, to be honest. Uh, they're going to try and make a a, a media I mean, event out like, of it. But as if they were they were concerned that they wouldn't get quite enough publicity as it was about their announcement of the wild cards. I mean that that was the baffling aspect of that announcement for me that that there was never going to be any shortage of publicity for that announcement, whether it was Facebook Live or not. But, hey, I suppose in for a penny, in yeah. for a pound. Um, so the, that, that is open. We, we obviously still don't know the situation as regards to Wimbledon. She may end up still getting enough points to qualify, both for qualifying and for main draw uh, for Wimbledon because she's still got tournaments in Madrid and Rome that she can count towards uh, that entry cutoff. But it was interesting to see that there were 200 journalists accredited for her first match and that's an extraordinary number uh, and and we understand from Simon Briggs that plenty were turned away as well plenty applied and were turned away yeah Uh, it just goes to show the level of interest and some of the questions asked uh, 
I, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but particularly from the British journalists were, were pointed and, uh, and put her on the spot, some of which I thought she handled really well. Others I think she, she was quite prickly towards and quite dismissive. And there was a very interesting oh. article by Oliver Holt over the weekend oh. in the Mail on Sunday saying that she was condescending. And, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to have a different view of that. I, I think she's been playing the PR That's game wrong all around. That's a flattering edit of that Oliver Holt article, David. That's a very flattering edit of that article. Yeah, I mean, condescending is is the tip of the iceberg of, of what he accuses her of. It's sort of righteousness and sneering, I think, is a word that he uses, and, and a superiority. But it's very and interesting it, that, it, I, depending on where you come from, different views of that press conference. Chris Clary said it was a fine press conference. Uh, Stuart Fraser called it a frosty press conference. A lot, a lot of people, depending on where you come from, had a different view of it, uh, as, as many do of the saga itself. It and the other thing about I mean, I, I wouldn't uh, certainly... I can't imagine anybody disagreeing with words like superiority and, and righteousness. And as Oliver Holt points out in that Daily Mail article, it's what's particularly interesting about it is... It's not unusual, that attitude for people coming back from a doping ban. That does seem to be sort of the default attitude. There isn't much contrition. It's sort of, let's forget that now, and I'm, I'm above it all. And in fact, in response to, to one question, when she, was, uh, when she was quizzed about comments that Jeannie Bouchard has made, pretty outspoken comments that Jeannie Bouchard made this week about her being, quote, a cheater, uh, she wasn't to be. She said, "I'm above that. I'm not going to." Because she she actually said, "I'm above that," and that pretty much sums up her whole position. And whatever you make of that, that is totally in keeping with Maria Sharapova's character, wasn't it? She had a total air of superiority and righteousness, for which she made no apology and makes no apology before the doping ban, didn't she? And I would That's say, just yeah, her vibe. I, I would. I think you're right. I think personality wise that is her default public pos- position on things I, I don't know what she's like away from the the microphones and away from the cameras I don't know her I've, I've interviewed her a couple of times that is it I know that a, a couple of journalists who've spoken to her at length of whose opinions I would trust like Chris Clary have said that he feels and this was pre um, drugs test fail um, that, that he thought there was a lot of depth to her. Now, I, I just can't comment other than to say that's what he said because I haven't met her. But she has always come across to me as somebody a little sneering and s- certainly condescending. Um, and, and that has certainly not changed, both in the way she's just gone about generally responding to this ban and, and the subsequent articles and comments that have been written and made about her over the course of it and also in the response to coming back it, it was the same Maria Sharapova she was so self-assured it seemed in, the, in that press conference it, it is, it's quite uncomfortable for me sometimes to watch somebody who's that confident in a, her own skin because yeah, it's so difficult to as relate Brits to, isn't it? we don't do that really no. we're, we're not that good at being hugely self-confident um, but, but I, I don't know I, I, I saw John Wertheim who's, who's made at the point a couple of times in Sports Illustrated's column that he feels that she should have adopted a much different approach um, in, in coming back from this and to be more contrite and to be less point scoring which has felt like what she's been doing a lot of the time 
um, and and quoting this article from Oliver Holt in the Mail on Sunday. So, you know, and that certainly would have been the way I would have preferred to have seen her come back. It's the way I'd prefer anybody coming back from a doping test to come back because let's let's be clear, there has been a failed test. That much is absolutely beyond question. So, you know, I think we, I think, I think the the world is owed just a little bit of uh, of contrition for that. I think we might be waiting a long time, though. <laughs> I, I, I mean, she's decided on this tack, and she is certainly sticking to it. You know, we discussed last week her manager Max Eisenbuds are pretty uh, outrageous comments. Uh, about uh, her fellow players that had spoken she, out about she her. wasn't having any of it was she well she, the thing she, is, she, she, she right, said right she him. said yeah pretty much without saying I back him she backed him she had the opportunity to distance herself from those comments and she firmly did not distance herself maybe it's from just them. loyalty but but I mean I I, I I got the sense yeah I mean she's I, I got the sense she's probably thinking well yeah <laughs> I do think there's an element of bubble. I do think these people are able to exist in a bubble. I think if you're that successful and that famous and that rich, and you can choose not to, you can choose to expose yourself to, to the realities of the sort of life that you and I and normal people live. But if you if you want to live in a bubble, you can. And Especially if you've got 15 million Facebook followers and you've got 100 million prize po- money in the Pover bank, whatever fam, it is. Shara fam. Yeah, I uh, still haven't looked up what I mean, they're the, called. But anyway, the, yeah. The, 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 we're, we're watching the ultimate person living in a bubble in the United States at the moment, and he's running the country. Um, and, oh, you know, Frank, two beers laws get, gets political. Well, I'm just saying, you know, we've got somebody who's who's got a massive Twitter following there. He doesn't care what anybody else says. He, he, he says what he wants on Twitter and he gets the responses he wants. Um, you can I mean, do it, it can't you? It must be just glorious to not give any hoots at all what anybody thinks. I mean, I, I'm... I'm glad I, I'm glad I don't suffer that sort of lack of self-awareness, but I can see that there must be something so liberating <laughs> about it. It must be great to be David Brent. Anyway, uh, so she eventually she made it to the semi-finals, just quickly returning to her form, because the fact is we haven't seen her. We, we've seen her perform well, and I think ex- generally speaking, exceed expectations. Hints of rustiness, as you said, but generally pretty good particularly on on serve and and playing the big points she's lost none of what she had she's in not terms of precisely the she, she's the ultimate competitor yeah. still but we haven't seen her tested no. against against but, a top player you know it was interesting that after what a match she was already being installed as the favorite for the french open now, and that, i mean that is extraordinary that seems absurd but when you actually looked down the list of other players there I mean, it was but, difficult to make a really strong case for somebody else. Well, it, being and the before favorite. she was installed as a favourite, Muguruza was the favourite. Which I, I get that she's defending champion, but I find that hard. I, I find it very hard for any educated tennis person to be thinking of her as the favourite to do win the think French Open. The bookie who made those odds may have been after the sort of publicity that we're now giving them, uh, because it is a great line to say Maria Sharapova is back after a 15-month ban and she's a favourite for the French Open. But when you actually look at the, the, the players in the list, with Serena Williams out of the sport, there's loads and loads of good players there. I, I would think, on form generally, I would say Simona Halep looks the best player to me but you but know then, she can she can throw in an awful performance 
just about any time. You know, you know, you, or, or or somebody else can throw in a great one. She's not the sort of player who's going to blast her way through the draw and you feel totally confident is, is going to win a Grand Slam. She's never won a Grand Slam before. Maria Sharapova has. What about Kiki Mladenovic, top eight now? Well, she... She showed in that match, and she's shown a couple of times this year just what a what a threat she can be at any tournament at any level. She has to piece it all together. That's that's the key. Um, and in France as well, lovely which player. The to French watch. don't tend to do. I have to say though, I mean, I, I think she's perhaps the sort of character who may thrive with that spotlight. She seems to be quite a a show. A show person in that way, you know, somebody who who just puffs the chest out, stands even taller with the glare of the of the the spotlight on her. I I don't She's I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know on a personal level to, to be able to judge that for sure. And I haven't seen enough big match experience of hers in France. But she she's played Fed Cup. I, I think she could be a huge huge star in in the next couple of years if she can put it all together in, in France. It's extraordinary how much she's improved. I was really struck by that this week. I mean, I watched a full week of her in Acapulco earlier this year, and I wasn't underwhelmed by her. She had a really good week. She reached the final there. But uh, technique-wise, I was having what so much of her. I was struck by the limitations of her technique. I thought, look, she's a great tennis player. I've talked before about how in terms of sort of stature and poise and physique, she is the cookie cutter mould of a tennis player you couldn't wish for anybody physically more perfect for a tennis player but I thought there were some serious limitations to her technique particularly on serve she doesn't use her height brilliantly but she just from Acapulco to this week in Stuttgart I was struck by the improvement in her game I think she is learning how to use the doubles experience her advantage really learning how to use her experience at the net she's not necessarily up at the net all the time and volleying all the time one. but she's comfortable wherever she is on the court the thing and with the doubles thing is that so often I, I feel as though doubles ends up detracting from, from a top singles player's game because they either play too much or they get confused within within a tournament and they've got all these matches backed up and I agree with you. She's somebody who I think she might be able to piece it together, and because she's a more natural player at the net, I think she's somebody who who has that that general framework to her game that that could be part she's of got her. A good balance, makeup, hasn't she? You know? She's very. Yeah. She seems to be very well balanced on the court. Laura Siegmund, David. She won the tournament. She's a joy. To <laughs> she watch. is amazing. She's a joy. I put to you now. You came up with the drop shot dragon tag for Albert, Albert Portis. Portis. Yeah. Could we have a women's drop shot dragon? Why not? Why not? And could it be Laura Siegman? Oh, I'm so glad you brought up the drop shot dragon. <laughs> Everybody, that—that uh, uh, that is my favourite opportunity ever made up. You know, it's on his Wikipedia page. Is it really? Yeah, because so I, because I, I, for some reason, he came up in conversation on uh, tennis radio and I was commentating that I, I cannot recall why Albert Portas came up and I went oh drop shot dragon <laughs> and I checked his Wikipedia page at, as that came up to see how official the term was and it's, it's in it's in his oh. bio it's in the intro so you, know, you have literally made tennis history uh, sort uh, of. The, just a little bit of background uh, I, I gave him this nickname when I was working for the ATP uh, back in 2000 and uh, he played against uh, our good friend Jeff Tarango in a match in uh, 
in Umag in Croatia and he drop shotted him so many times particularly on the forehand that Jeff wanted to wrap his racket round his throat right and uh, so in the media notes that I was writing that day I, did, I just called him the drop shot dragon for some reason and I don't even know why I, that's what I did this and is what happens I, when you give David Law editorial yeah. control and then what I did is I thought that sounds quite good actually <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to keep calling him he that. He goes, oh, I quite like my own idea. Yeah, I do. So, uh, so <laughs> You to... should see the pride on yeah. David Law's face So anyway, face I, call, right I called I'm gonna, him... I'm going to take a photo Just a minute. I, 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 so I called him this for, for the next six months. Um, and, uh, you know, to anybody who would listen, frankly. Um, He's and not then joking. we got to we got to the Hamburg tournament, the Hamburg ATP tournament, which was the, was the old Madrid Masters 1000 tournament. And Albert Portas succeeded to beat both Leighton Hewitt, who was then world number one, and Juan Carlos Ferrero, who would be a French Open champion. He beat them both to win the tournament. He, he won Hamburg, right? And at his final press conference, I led him into the press conference room, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, your Hamburg champion, the drop shot dragon, Albert Portas. Did the room erupt? First question, why do they call you the drop shot dragon? And he goes, so my he goes, he goes, he just sort of shuffled on his seat and he looked at me to his left and he goes, well, he gave it to me. And, they, and I said, yeah, but that's because it fits, doesn't it, everybody? And they all said, well, yeah, absolutely. When did you start hitting drop shots like that? Because he was relentlessly drop shotting both Juan Carlos Ferrer and Leighton Hewitt to distraction. So they will. On the next podcast, we're going to get Goran Ivanovic to tell us why he calls David Law the eagle. No, you're not. And the smile has gone. Uh, so, <laughs> we digress. Laura Siegman, the new drop shot dragon, David. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you've, you've convinced me. <laughs> that's fine. Well, we've got to think of something else because there is only one drop shot dragon, and that's Albert Porter. So. I, I test your nickname skills. Leave what it with me. Just leave it with me is all I can say. But anyway, I, I couldn't agree more with you. She's a joy to watch. I, I first saw her, I think, probably really took notice of her last year, I think, at the same tournament. Yeah, she reached the final. Yeah, she, and she was fantastic. I think she... Who did she beat she, along the way? She was a qualifier. Way? She beat Halep. She beat Radvanska. Yeah. That was it. I, I, I commentated on those matches, um, and I remember sitting with uh, Sam Smith and Anki Othavong, and I knew very little about her, and they just said, just, just watch the way she plays a point and then turns away and it's business as usual and onto the next one and it's really it was really noticeable how positive and optimistic and upbeat she was and and just made you think oh this is somebody who's getting the most out of what she's got and she's, she's 29 she made her first grand slam main draw in 2015 won her first title last year this is by far her biggest title i mean she's her story is a joy she's a joy to watch she's just tremendous yeah no she is and uh, and, and very much congratulations to her yeah it, absolutely it, just a quick I mean I mentioned Radvanska there what a torrid year she's having she lost first round of course we were this time last week we were anticipating the possible first round match or second round match between her and Maria Sharapova which didn't happen because Radvanska didn't win through speaking of torrid years torrid perhaps an overstatement but I suppose relative to expectations Angelique Kerber another early loss she's it's another early loss that she's talking about in isolation. She's saying, oh, it's just a bad week for me. You know, move on, hope for a better week next week. Yeah. But she surely has to be looking at 
the bigger picture, doesn't she? Well, it's more than just but, but, but how, a bad week what, followed what by else, what do you do bad though? weeks in isolation. I, mean, let, I let, don't know. Let, let's, what I mean is, if she were to look at it in any other way, how could she come through it? I, well, I, you go away and you think, there's something big going wrong here that I need, I need to analyse, rather than just... sounds to me like she's just closing her eyes and hoping that it'll be different next week. I mean, and let, I sp- it, it, let's it not might forget, be. six months ago, she was beating everybody. So if she, if she were to make a fundamental change to her game or to her technique or to her preparation or to her coaching team, that would be a huge step to take. Um, this is somebody who was fantastic last year. I don't think you... It's like a, a football team sacking the manager after a half a dozen bad results, isn't it? Do, do you not go away and look at them in isolation? And I don't think, think any sacking improve? should be. T- I don't think she needs to throw any babies out with and then, any and bath water. Is, I'm just, if, if, she, just, she, if just, she looks at it on a grand level, there needs to be a level. bit more. Uh, maybe she, maybe she. Isn't it a defence mechanism to yes, stop herself panicking? Precisely. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But maybe she needs to panic a bit. I don't know. Maybe that's what she's saying. Panic in press is and never private. good, is it? Whenever I, I panic on the tennis the court, fear, it all goes wrong. Sometimes the fear can lead to good things. You know, is that what happened to you against your brother after six <laughs> years of, fo- of I failure? I don't even. I mean, <laughs> I don't even fear losing to him anymore. Oh, okay. No, you can't. Coach Catherine, what, what's your <laughs> what's Catherine. your what is your solution for Angelique Kerberlin? I, 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 a sports psychologist, maybe. That would. I mean, she's probably already seeing one. What top player? Would you know? It's all about leaving no stone unturned, isn't it? I mean, maybe she's already seeing one, but honestly, you know, it, I, I I don't think it is anything much more complicated than the fact that she is a very good player, but not a great player, and she's somebody who's absolutely wrung the last drop out of herself last year to overachieve, and. Okay, I think she's better than what she's producing right now, but she's more or less returning to the mean at the moment. And she, she lower than that, but I, I don't. I think there's a limit to what she can do, and I think the problem is when you win as big as she did, you get compared to that level, and she's not that level really. Not I mean, not I not, would, not throughout look, the course I think of her that's career. Actually, I think that's great analysis. She's a top actually, 10 and player. I agree with you. And and it was something that. Simon Briggs talked about in our preview podcast at Australian Open really he described it really well her sort of technique uh, her, her frankly quite awkward technique and how extraordinary it is that she's got to world number one and she's absolutely deserved to but you know it's it's a game which you would expect there to be limitations to what what worries me is how little enjoyment she seems to be getting from playing tennis that's what I read more and into. I think the other problem with with winning as big as she did and then not winning is yeah that that the the contrast is so extreme she she's been used to five years of winning quite a lot and being top 10 in the world and being a really really good player suddenly last year she was winning virtually every week and she was world number one and she won two slams she got to the final of another one she got to olympic final i mean she played a roger federer year last year really or serena williams year i mean it, it that's not Angelique Kerber, typically. I mean, all credit to her for having done it, but I think it must be very difficult if, if you are in any way in your own mind comparing yourself to that because the chances are she's not going to live up to that. Yeah, I, t- I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm loath to repeat it, but excellent analysis, David Law. Oh. Do you know what I'm going to let you do as a reward to your excellent analysis? What's that? Do you want to go and get another beer? Go on then. Two beers, Law, on the way.
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash spoken today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Right then, David's uh, well is replenished, and uh, I think we've pretty wholeheartedly covered what happened uh, in Stuttgart last week on the WTA Tour, so let's talk about Barcelona and the ATP Tour and the fact that Rafael Nadal has won his second La Decima, just giving me the opportunity to say La Decima, and I do it with with a gesture, with a sort of (laughs) Spanish gesture with I, my I hands. really feel like I need to take a picture of you <laughs> doing that with the hands. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like a Spanish chef describing <laughs> his creation. Um, yes, he's done his second La Decima of the year. He has, isn't he? Uh, and, and he's done it. I mean, I didn't watch all of the matches. I watched some of the matches. But he's winning these titles now in regulation fashion, as though he does it all the time, as though he used to do it. As though, frankly, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. He's going to win these these big matches. He's going. To, I mean, he's not. He was barely barely pushed, wasn't he, last week in Barcelona, and he beat Dominic Team in the final six four six one. Who is probably the other most explosive clay quarter in the world right now, and and he beat him handily, comfortably. Um, yeah, watch out, everybody. Is is all I can say because. I don't see Nadal being stopped. It can happen. He, he was playing quite pretty well last year on clay, and then he had the wrist problem. Right now, if, if he's fully fit, I don't see anybody stopping him. I don't either. I, I mean, I really... It, I mean, it's, it's so different to, uh, to what we were discussing with, you know, producing a list of bookies' favourites on the women's side. I mean, on the way you're sort of looking you're looking for standout favourites and you really, well I can't see any anywhere Uh, on the men's side there is one head and shoulders favourite and then there's everybody else, I don't think he's a head and shoulders favourite in the way that he was in the late noughties no, no, of course not and and there is is still a fragility I think that wasn't there back then, I think that certain players can get to him with big power and um, I mean look Kyle Edmund pushed him in Monte Carlo but but there's nobody else of the top players that are in that great form at the moment I mean I tell you what no, timing is everything I've, the, I talk what, about what it would be so much on this podcast the timing 
is everything what if he in plays tennis. Federer? We don't give enough credit to it. What if he plays Federer I mean, at the I French can't. Open? You know, Federer having can't. put his you feet up You say what if? I mean, months. the chances are. Six weeks. <laughs> the I way mean, this tennis season is going, I mean, that you know, might happen. Federer would come out having won, what, their last three? And feeling like he's he's cracked the code. And, and somehow, despite having won their last three, despite being the standout player of 2017, he would once again be the underdog, which is exactly what he's enjoyed being. Yeah. Like, I mean, no, <laughs> everything. <laughs> Life is just, it just can't get more perfect for Roger Federer. Yeah, I mean, uh, it would be interesting if that happened. And I, I don't know, I think that, I think Federer is likely to sail through the opening few rounds. I mean, uh, I, I suppose timing could be an issue, getting onto clay, having not played it for for such a long time and not playing unless any the draw gives him a horror I mean I suppose I what suppose would he be could, a horror I do he'd get Del Potro first round I don't, I don't even think that would be a horror because the ball comes you know, into his strike zone he'd get Ramos Vanola round yeah, three some, someone like that might be a problem somebody who's got big spin and takes him out of the court early on but you know he imagine playing Roger Federer who's got nothing to lose I mean oh, and that's I mean, that's how he views it one's worst nightmare you know uh, but, but I mean but that's look, Roger Federer for the rest of his career now isn't it that's well, Roger Federer in no, every match he I plays d- I don't, now I don't agree with that because I think when he comes to Wimbledon he'll feel differently I think he'll feel pressure to achieve and to succeed and to, to, to back up what he's done early on in this year still I don't think it'll stop him because I, I, he can handle it he can handle it but you see, when you see Roger Federer in practice, I, I'm loath to ever talk about players in practice because I don't know what I'm talking about, and all players look brilliant in practice to me. But plenty of people that don't know what they're talking about do to me. Oh, it looks great in practice. Well, they do say he? that. But Roger Federer well, what does that plays mean? trick shots, and he, he fills around, and, and he plays shots that I can't even imagine other players trying. And now he's trying them in matches. This is well, the that interesting was how the, thing. That was how the Sabre came about, wasn't yeah, it? He was just having a right. bit of fun. But, but, just, but no, just, just very quickly, it is, as, as a neutral, I think if you, if you can't rejoice in seeing Nadal do what he used to do just the same way as Federer doing what he used to do, then there's something wrong with you because this is great. No, I do. I do, I do absolutely rejoice in it. I'm, I'm loving it. I just wish you'd do it a bit more quickly. Watching... Federer come back and particularly watching his matches against uh, against Kyrgios his match against Kyrgios and just watching a lot of Kyrgios and a lot of Federer as I have done recently I've realised how much I enjoy the game being played at a fast pace and going back to watching a lot of Nadal between points you mean between points it didn't used to bother me that much when it's been this hot topic as it has been for the past five or so years I've accepted that that it that it is an issue because other tennis fans see it as an issue and therefore it is it's never particularly bothered me but it has been of late because I think I've I think tennis generally slowed down and everybody was playing quite slowly and now there's a bit of a move in the other direction and you've got Federer and Kyrgios and Stamper Brinker plays pretty quickly I mean Murray and Djokovic don't but it, it suddenly is striking me a bit more and it suddenly is hmm. frustrating me a bit. But can, anyway, can I, I mean, it's not fair to him really to, to bring up that can negative. Can I talk about Andy Murray quickly? Well, ha- what, 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 hang on, David. I've got an agenda here. He's right. on it. Right. He's just not on it yet. Okay, fine. Right, I was I'm... just going to mention, because, Albert, I, because I mentioned Albert ramos Vanolas there, we, and we've already obviously mentioned Dominic Team. who reached the final in Barcelona and it, it was pretty great last week, beat Andy Murray, who you'll get to talk about in a minute. David. What a specific theme, by the but way. But we looked at the rankings before we came on air for this podcast. 
And handily in the rankings, it tells you uh, the player, their age, the number of points they have, and it tells you how many tournaments they played to reach that ranking. Albert Ramos Vanolas has played 31 tournaments in the past 12 months. And that is more than that's more than anybody else more than in his two. vicinity. I mean, I, I can't see anybody that's. I mean, yeah, it's more than Dominic Team who's played. We, the reason we looked at it was for the reference point of Dominic Team, who is the next most at 29. And let me tell you, that is so many more than anybody else ranked anywhere near him. So he's nine in the world. He's at 20, 29 tournaments in the past 12 months, and the next closest to that is Marin Cilic at 22. And then if you look at other players up above, Stan Wawrinka's played 20, Rafael Nadal's played 15, Djokovic 16, Murray 18. And Andy Murray 18, and that's with Andy Murray playing, you know, he played pretty much week in, week out at the back end of last year in that assault for the world number one ranking. So that was with a more full schedule than we're used to seeing Andy Murray play with. And yet we've got, yeah, so... Yeah, I don't want to labour the Dominic team point, but there he is at 29. And there, Albert ramos Vanolas is at 31 tournaments. I mean, yeah, somebody let him have a nap. Yeah, passed. Have a week off, he can, have a, he can have a nap. It's paying off for him. I mean, he, he's, he very nearly beat Andy Murray for a second time. Cue opportunity for David yeah. Lord to talk about Andy Murray. Just two things I wanted to say. Uh, one is that, first of all, I think that uh, that is a big week for Andy Murray. I think that win over Albert ramos Fanolis is a big week, big win for Andy Murray um, because he lost to him in Monte Carlo. And, it, and midway through that match, I'm thinking, if he wins this, it's quite a, it's quite a statement to himself that he's, he's just started to dig into these matches and, and just find that inner beast again. You know, that, that guy of, come on, man, I'll take you all on and your mates. And, you know, I, I will not be denied. That, that look in his eye, that look of, of, yeah, I'm ready to face anything, anyone, anywhere, I agree with anytime. you, David. And I felt exactly the same when he found the way through to beat Albert Ramos and Onas. And then I was expecting him to push on and beat Dominic Team. I was expecting it I to wasn't. be a battle. I was expecting Team to challenge him. But I did feel like... Uh, See, I wasn't. I, I think it's too early for that one. I, I think, yeah, I think if those two play each other at the French Open, then I think you'd you will all, see You'd always favour Murray over best of five. Over well, I, yes, and that's obviously what they've got to peak towards. But I just feel that these top players and Andy Murray... And Djokovic. I mean, it'll be interesting to see which Djokovic we get when we get to the French Open, whether he's fit enough or not. Um, but they they have a, a sixth sense about how to peak in a way that the other guys don't. And, you, and part of that is that scheduling. You, you've just seen it. Dominic Team is playing 11 more tournaments a year than Andy Murray, many more than, than the other guys. So, um, yeah, I, I think really good signs from Andy Murray. The other thing I just wanted to say is I was thinking the other night about clay court tennis and why I love the clay court season so much the, the thing I love about it is when hard court and grass court specialists come onto clay and they're the best players in the world year round top five in the world and then they have to bring that to clay and I was thinking about this over the last 20 years if I go back 20 years to Andre Agassi when he was world number one wonderful backcourt player took the ball early and then he brought that onto clay and took on Carlos Moyer and Albert Costa and Alex Carreccia 
Alberto Berisategui, players like this. I used to love all of that. Uh, and I think the, the same still applies today, less so because you don't see as many players going for it, I don't think, on, on the hardcore players. We talked about the Americans, not enough of them are playing it. Um, but I love seeing them collide, those two worlds, you know? Quick one on, on Dominic Team. We, we've made the point pretty firmly about his schedule, etc., etc. Obviously, a great week for him. He played some extraordinary tennis. I loved every minute of watching Dominic Team last week until the final. And I felt like that was a Dominic Team match that I'd seen before. I felt like as soon as he lost that first set when he was very competitive, I knew what was going to happen in the second set. And my mind was cast back to what you said about Davy Goffin last week when I put it to you, you know, did he fall away a bit too quickly after the disappointment of what happened with the umpire's intervention and, and the disappointment of that, as understandable as it was. And you said, yes, it was a bit disappointing, but let's see how we would deal with that situation again next time. Will he learn from it? Will he deal with it better the second time? And I just felt like, look, I am a huge Dominic Team fan. I... I love watching him play tennis so much, particularly on the clay. His explosive power and shot-making of both wings is unreal. And I love his temperament. I like his attitude. He's fantastic. But I knew he was going to lose that second set really easily. And I, I that feeling didn't sit right for me because he's probably the third or fourth best clay court player in the world, really, at the moment. And you don't want to be feeling that sinking feeling of oh this match is over after one set with one of the best clay court players in the world yeah you you don't and we had a similar situation I think in the semi-finals of the French Open last year against Djokovic he just couldn't really get competitive Um, but I think time will tell with him I I mean he's still young he's he's putting out consistent results but he's at the moment he's just knocking on the door of those biggest ones be interesting to see whether he can break through it or not. And I'm not convinced uh, mindset-wise. Game-wise, I am. I think he's a fabulous player. He is Stan Wawrinka in so many ways. They are so similar, their games. And if Stan can do it, game-wise, then Dominic Team can do it. But He's not an ox in the way that Stan Wawrinka well, is, though, is he? He's got no. a fantastic physique. He's got sort of this Federer-esque balance physique. He's sort of a bit more slight, but his timing is so perfect that he can get the power without the muscle somehow. Um, and But, yeah, in terms of shot-making off both wings, it's hard to compare him to anybody but Stan Wawrinka, really. Uh, there's a couple of any other business items on the agenda, but just very, very quickly, it's not a big talking point, but before we move on to those, I just want to mention Sasha Zverev, who we've spoken of so much on the podcast, and I, I've said I think he's a future world number one. I stand by that, but it's interesting, isn't it, these young players that are talked about so much and nobody believes in Sasha Zverev more than Sasha Zverev. We know that. He's got the swagger. But he's hitting the first little bit of adversity, isn't he? He was hit with a pretty chastening experience against Rafael Nadal in Monte Carlo last week, a match that a lot of people thought he would challenge in. And then this week in Barcelona, he was hit with a pretty hefty defeat at the hands of another next-gen player, Hyun Chung, 6-4-6-1, I think it was. That, I think, will have really stung. Do you think Do you think it might be good for him to have a slightly chastening period and realise it's not going to all come really easily? 
or well I, the, I, you know uh, I think the reference point is Federer and when I think of Federer's curve he came across came along as a 17 year old he played his debut at 16 he played his first real pro year at 17 18 he got his big win over Sampras at 19 took him another two years to win a slam after that and, Federer biography and he he had <laughs> as Zverev had a, had a, oh, sorry Federer had some pretty rough ropey times during that three or four years he had some big wins yeah, he lost to Mario Antic first Louis Horner at the French and, Open and, and if you look at some of his other tournaments the Barcelonas and uh, all these sort of tournaments he had long periods of, of not doing very well and, and underachieving and there was do you think it helped him in the long run? I just think it was all part of the, the building blocks it's, it, it depends what it does to you along the way when it was Dimitrov that we were in the situation with I think scar tissue emotionally and psychologically built up and he's, and he, he, he's, I thought he'd banished that at the start of this year, but I mean, it feels like it's building again a little bit. He feels that much, that much more up and down. I think also his, his interest level may wax and wane a little bit compared to a guy like Zverev, who I actually think seems to have a really good approach. He cares oh, massively. He's keyed in all the, the time. time, and and I think that he. He will work it out. I don't think he's as talented as Roger Federer. As, as good as he is, I don't think he is that I talented I mean, at that all. applies to the other 7 billion people in well, the world. Well, of course, of course it <laughs> does. But, that's you know, not a criticism. I, I would not be worried about Alexander Zverev. I, I think the bigger concern would be when I watched him play Kyrgios, I actually thought Kyrgios just looked, frankly, a better player. Um, and it will be interesting to see whether Zverev can develop his game um, to, to start winning those matches when they come. I, I, I think he's also playing a bit too much, too many tournaments, Zverev, at the moment. Still not as many as Dominic Team though. Uh, in Budapest this week, lovely city, by the way. That is one of my favourite European cities, uh, provided we're talking about Budapest, Hungary, and not Budapest, you know, Mexico or Budapest, California. Well, knowing you, we are. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't fact-checked that we are talking about Budapest, Hungary, but I, I do feel confident on this one. Uh, Aliash Badene, OK, he lost in the final to Luka Pui, uh, but he came off the back of two back-to-back challenger victories. He was outside the top 100. In Australia this year, he looked completely bereft, and you know we've talked about how sometimes his press conferences can feel like therapy sessions. What I mean, I'm just so full of admiration for him and what he's doing out of the spotlight aside from anything that's going on with the Davis Cup and the tussles with all the federations he's got going on he's just quietly playing great tennis yeah he is uh, and, and uh, I'm not I don't think I expected this at all I, I didn't I thought he was a good player who would you know have some good weeks and probably be getting to the top 50 but I did not see him I know it's slightly lower level but I did not see him putting 15 match win run it in, in together i did not see that at all uh from him so fair play to the guy um great great, great achievement also a note on on the guy who beat him in the final luca pui who is from that generation and he doesn't get anything like the the degree of coverage i don't feel as curious and zverev and and, and others he sort of did very briefly when he beat nadal yeah but it, it at the us open but then it, it, was it still, faded very quickly it was didn't nadal it? related yeah. it was the fact that he beat nadal it wasn't about him and then when he when he played the davis cup and i thought you know we'll get a, a sense of what this guy's like will he we're talking about mladenovic what are they like in front of a french crowd he he grew he grew he 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 puffed his chest out and looked a bigger, stronger, better player. And he's backed that up. Since then, he's been really, really impressive ever since. And 
he's got a bit more to him than I thought because he's winning these tournaments and he's beating people he should beat. And I always feel that that's a good sign. Beating people you should beat. Yeah, yeah. because it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's easy to get sign. excited against big names. But can yeah. you just keep clocking in and clocking out and beating the guys that on paper you should be able to beat while he's doing that? Damn right, David. Damn right. He was speaking an awful lot of sense this week. I don't know what's happened like to it, two yeah. beers law, but um, yeah. Anyway, uh, a bit of any other business this week is um, baby related. Because uh, in terms of baby related news, obviously the Serena news is very much old by now. Although what is new about the Serena old baby news is that she's revealed that uh, she revealed it by accident. Yes. The Instagram post she did, that she it. put Snap, out. Snapchat, <laughs> she Catherine. Hadn't... Snapchat. Was it? Get, get with it. Oh, I don't Even I know about Snapchat. that. Snapchat, it makes me feel ancient. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I saw my 11-year-old cousins last week and they were trying to Snapchat me and I don't know. it all went... It just didn't happen because I'm not on Snapchat. Anyway. Um, yeah, so she revealed that her Snapchat post revealing that she was pregnant had actually been intended to just be a private record she was taking weekly photos of herself as a sort of private uh, photo diary of her pregnancy and she accidentally almost by reflex put on i mean that happens to me all the time don't know about you david yeah on my snapchat (laughs) um but it brings us on to the baby related subject and novak Djokovic was revealed today i mean it's hardly news it was very much an open secret I suppose in the tennis world but he is expecting uh, his second uh, baby with wife Yelena I think that's due uh, this summer after Wimbledon I think I hope they've timed it for after Wimbledon but anyway he's expecting his second baby which brings us on to uh, baby chat and handily Simon Briggs has been thinking about this this week I mean obviously we've got Azarenka coming back later this year and there was a fantastic interview that Chris Clary did with her in the New York Times this week. He travelled uh, to Belarus uh, to meet her there, to go to her old tennis club where she played when she was younger, to go to where she trains now and just, I mean, it, it's fascinating. It really, really is an interesting character study of her, somebody who we have both talked about, David, as being sort of really misunderstood, I think, by fans and the media I think there's an awful lot to her I find her a very engaging interesting individual uh, who's been widely misunderstood and I think maybe this whole um, journey that she's on and coming back from having a baby might make her better understood by the media I don't know it would be interesting to see but anyway it's and it's prompted Simon Briggs to write a very interesting article in the Telegraph about how female players coming back after pregnancy, after having a baby, could start to become the norm on uh, on the tour, especially as the life expectancy of tennis careers grows longer. It seems both in in the men's and women's game, it seems to be that it's n- no longer the norm that you expect women to pack up and retire once they get pregnant. You don't instantly think that. And Serena has been very open with her in- intentions at this stage to come back after she's had uh, her first baby and Simon Briggs has caught up with Kim Clijsters who knows a thing or two about coming back from pregnancy she wrote the book in it on it and uh, this is what she had to say to Simon Briggs about it you do have to do a lot of exercises I mean you know you you start from zero and, and you you know you have a few weeks like if you have an injury 
you, you're still able to work out, and you, but you find ways to do it. But in the pregnancy, you can train your stomach muscles, and you can train. So you, you start from zero, and, and it's every day. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of boring exercises, but you've... Yeah, but, but it comes back fast. And I think that's something that I noticed uh, with mine. Even now, after three, like I feel like, okay, after a third, it's a little bit harder, but your body is so used to being a certain way because of your sport that it's it's easier. Did you have to stop um, being quite as gymnastic afterwards? I mean, you're known for your incredible flexibility. That was, no, that was, that was actually, not a problem? No, I didn't, no, no, I didn't feel any limitations. Um, but I do link that to, to starting off slowly um, and, and making sure that I trained, you know, the the post-pregnancy exercise and the muscles very well and, and I didn't rush into it because I didn't think I was going to play again. That, that's one big difference, I think. Oh, really? to, yeah, I didn't plan to, to play again until like a year, until a year after I had the baby. Like, I had time. I enjoyed being a mother and, and only worried about that for you know, a few months and, and, and with Jada I was breastfeeding for almost a year and, and so I wanted to take my time to do that I didn't want to rush into because I didn't think about playing tennis again and then that feeling kind of grew again um, so it's, I think it's a different approach if you see Azarenka and if you see Serena they're already talking about yeah, coming talking back about where it, whereas for me that definitely wasn't the case and that made it easier for you in some ways um, well yeah I feel like I had time to be a mother and, and, and to do that 100% and to, to you know enjoy every aspect and and, um, and just being home with the baby and, and taking everything in and, and because it's an emotional ride and, and but it's still um, no tennis trophy will compare to giving birth and and, uh, and I'm really excited you know, for Serena to, to experience it after everything that she's already done in tennis and, and in her life. I'm, I'm really excited for her to experience motherhood. So that's Simon Briggs very opportunistically catching up with Kim Kleister. Was what better person to talk about coming back from pregnancy? I mean, those scenes of her at the US Open winning there with her daughter Jada on the court with her and the trophy are so vivid, I think, in every tennis fan's mind. Of course, she did it again as well I mean it's extraordinary and look we said it last week when we were talking about Serena Williams announcement it's really difficult to make sweeping generalizations about pregnancy I mean I don't know a thing about pregnancy but I do know that everybody experiences it differently and I have heard some very well-meant, well-intentioned statements and comments out there sort of making assumptions about how Serena Williams will experience pregnancy on the basis of how they or their wives or people they know have and sort of saying things like, you know, all, all your career and Grand Slam achievements will sometime, somehow pale into significance and seem less important in light of having this wonderful thing in your life and maybe it will. But if it doesn't, that doesn't mean she's a bad mother. And if it does, it doesn't mean she's less of a champion. You know, who knows how it will affect her mentally. David is is smiling at me in a in a. Go on, David. What have you got well, to say? I, I don't know what I'm smiling at you as in, but I, I know that that you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, everybody's different. Everybody's different, and uh, yeah, I know enough people who've had kids women who've had babies, men who've been fathers, to know that no two situations are the same necessarily. So all I can do is hope that Serena Williams 
enjoys her pregnancy and that it all goes well and that she she's very happy and hopefully as well just from a very selfish perspective as a tennis fan hope she comes back as well yeah well exactly i mean it's really difficult isn't it we, we want to analyze it and it's so interesting it's especially that she stated her intention to come back this early you know azarenka didn't do that Kleisters didn't do that in fact in that interview with simon she said i didn't know that i was going to come back and that affected sort of her it it took her a the road back was a bit longer. We want to analyse it. We want to talk about it. But then at the same time, we're saying we can't really analyse it because everyone's different and we don't have a clue. So on the uh, we don't have a clue note, <laughs> we've got quite a busy week for people that don't have a clue about the tennis world. We're both at Queen's tomorrow, David. For I mean, Queen's suddenly... See, it, it's weird, isn't it? Because the clay court season is very much in full swing and yet due to the fact that there is absolutely no gap between the clay court season and the grass court season, we have to be sort of thinking about the grass court season whilst we're very much enjoying and in the depths of the clay court season. So we'll be at Queen's tomorrow. And you're you're just swinging casually into Madrid for the day on Thursday, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, as, as most of the tennis world appears to be. Uh, because, first of all, just to say, uh, Queen's, as you say, we're, we're going to be there tomorrow. And during the Yegon Championships at Queen's, we will have a daily tennis podcast, won't we, Catherine Whitaker? Presented by Catherine and our good friend Gigi Salmon, friend of the pod, of course. Uh, so that's that to look forward to. Um, yeah, j- just to say, t- two little things. One is that it's been decided that Andy Murray is going to play on the Tuesday of Queen's, uh, his first match, and there are a few tickets left, so if you want to go and get one of those, agonchampionships.com to do so. I, th- I think... I think more tournaments should do that. Well, it, it, it I, is. I mean, it helps. I know it's not. I know it's not always easy for tournaments to do, and I understand why they. You can only do it with one or two, can't yeah, you? Yeah, you, you really? can. But I do. I think because it, it, I've been in a ticket buying fan situation, trying to second guess what tournaments yeah. will do and when they'll schedule the big players, and but I. I think that's a, a leg up to fans. Yeah, so Andy Murray, if you want to see him, uh, Tuesday, uh, uh, what is it, the 20th of June, he'll be playing. So go and get your tickets. And on Thursday of this week, Thursday the 4th of May, tiebreak 10's edition number three will take place in Madrid, a men's and women's tournament uh, running Ooh. side by side. Uh, we that, have. That was a, that was a whoop. Was it? Okay, good. Yeah. In celebration very... of it being men's and women's. So we don't have to have our own been in the pop sound effect uh, bank. We've just got Catherine Whitaker with her sound effects. And uh, yeah, basically an eight player tournament for the men, eight player tournament for the women. Both of them knock out, both of them winner takes all, $200,000 on the line. Uh, if you're in the UK, you can watch it on Dave which is a TV channel that I particularly yeah. like. International listeners are probably very confused, but yeah. Dave is a TV show. There you go. It's not Dave Levy. You can't watch it on Dave Levy. Well, I love that name. So there we are. And, uh, yeah, basically, uh, players that have already signed up on the women's side, Garbini Magarutha, French Open champion, Joe Contas playing, Radvanska, Halep, um, Sharapova's playing. They're all playing, Catherine Whitaker. Madison Keys. I mean, it's not bad, is it? It's a, it's a good field. It's a decent yeah. field. And on the men's side, there is Stan Vavrinka. Any wild cards? Because $200,000 sounds, sounds all right. But you're in not a, having one. In a, in a tie-break situation, I think, you know... You fancy yourself. Just, just, load, just <laughs> sort of... I, th- I think the element of surprise could take me so far... It'd be a big surprise you being in it, wouldn't it? Just saying, yeah. you know, if you've got any sway with the tournament organisers, just just put 
and if put I my had, name in the mix. You would not be mentioned. Uh, also on the bloke side, uh, so Stan Wawrinka, Luca Pui, who we were talking about earlier. Um, there is also I don't even know who's playing. To be honest quite, with you, I can't quite remember. David Ferrer. Yeah, he I think. was playing. He's not anymore. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell we're in the pub, can't you? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's a, it's it's a good old field, and uh, there's loads of players in it, and it's going to be on Thursday uh, at six thirty UK time, seven thirty local time in Madrid, and uh, you'll be able to watch uh, exactly what happens. Catherine Dave, is frantically looking it up on the website because my mind is gone. Fernando Vidasco. Oh, there we are. Yeah, Fernando Vidasco. Feliciano Lopez. I know he's playing as well. Um, so yeah, I'm just it's frantically in. naming Spaniards now. Thomas Burdick, Griggle, Dimit. Hey, you for, you forgot Griggle. I forgot Griggle. Hey, there's a player there that I didn't even know was in it. Dan Evans, dangerous Dan, he snuck his way into the podcast again. Who'd have thought it? And At Thomas the very Burdick last, and Jack Sock. So there we did are. you save a Vrinker? You I saved a Vrinker. That's, did that's save a good Vrinka. field as well. Made all the better by uh, Big Dan. There you go. We have been the tennis podcast brought to you in association with The Telegraph and with your ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Sport, and we will be back next week. 